we are talking tonight about uh, justification and adoption. 1738, uh, Samuel Johnson wrote in his diary, Samuel, Samuel Johnson was uh, what they might call a literary giant, but he wrote in his diary, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. That's the way they talked back in the 1700s. And uh, 19 years later, he wrote this, and I quote, Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. Unquote. Did you hear the similarities? 19 years difference, and basically it was the same prayer, right? He wrote some variation of this prayer every day after that. Finally, in 1775, 38 years after his first resolution, he wrote, quote, when I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try and resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. Close quote. That sum it up for us human beings. You know, I've talked before about the resolutions that we make at the beginning of the year and how we... You know, we set ourselves on course. You know, I'm going to lose X number of pounds. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to read these books. I'm going to do all these things. And we get all hyped up at the end of the year feeling like we need to make these goals going into the new year, don't we? And then before long, you find yourself, okay, I'm not going to the gym tonight. And I'll have that piece of cake, you know, haven't lost any weight anyway. So what difference does it make? And before you know it, you're six or seven or eight months down the road and you're looking back and saying, nothing's really changed, has it? And that's a microcosm of the challenges that we face in life as human beings is that we really, when we depend upon our own self-determination, we usually come up short. And that's kind of the basis for thinking about this doctrine of justification. That apart from justification, we really have little to no hope. You know, that God is the one who must do the work. God is the one who declares our justification. What does it mean to be justified anyway? What are we, what are we talking about when we say justification? How would we define it? How did Grudem define it? If you've read that chapter. Anybody? Don't all speak at once. All right, justification, Grudem says, is an instantaneous legal act in which he, God, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven in Christ's righteousness belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So, he thinks of our sins as forgiven. He declares that our sins are forgiven, and God looks at us and has that as his thinking process. He doesn't see us as sinners any longer. There was an interesting drawing uh, in the chapter to illustrate this. You remember the, uh, the two circles? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that over here you've got they have these minuses. 
this was to represent a person with sin, right? And when you're justified, this is the way God looks at us, even though we even continue to sin. Just, justification is a forensic process. It, it's a legal declaration by God based upon what Christ has done for us that God sees us without the sin, right? But that's not all. He went on further to say it's not enough just to be without sin. We have to have the positive side, which is what? Christ's righteousness. Righteousness, that's right. <coughs> righteousness. That we, God sees us no longer filled with sin. He sees us filled with Christ. He sees us as he sees Christ. That's the great exchange that takes place. And justification is God declaring that it's so. I want to uh, read a paragraph or two out of uh, Herman Bavinck's um, Reformed Dogmatics. It is, um, we might call it Reformed Ethics. <clears throat> and how he approaches justification. The title of this paragraph is Justification is Forensic and not ethical. Here's what he says. To correctly assess the benefit of justification, people must lift up their minds to the judgment seat of God and put themselves in his presence. When they compare themselves with others or measure themselves by the standard that they apply to themselves or among each other, they have some reason perhaps to pride themselves in something and to put their trust in it. But when they put themselves before the face of God and examine themselves in the mirror of His holy law, all their conceit collapses, all self-confidence melts, and there is room left only for the prayer, quote, Enter not unto, into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And their only comfort is that, quote, there is, there is forgiveness before you so that you may be revered. If for insignificant if for insignificant, guilty, and impure persons there is to be a possibility of true religion, that is, of genuine fellowship with God, of salvation and eternal life, then God on His part must reestablish the broken bond. Again, take them into fellowship with Him and share His grace with them, regardless of their guilt and corruption. He then must descend from the height of His majesty Seek us out and come to us. Take away our guilt and again open the way to his fatherly heart. If God were to wait until we, by our faith, our virtues and good works of congruity or condignity, had made ourselves worthy in part or in whole to receive his favor, the restoration of communion between him and ourselves would never happen. You know what he's saying? If this process relied upon our initiative and our ability, then it would never happen. We're incapable. Mm -hmm. This is why so much depends on the benefit of justification. And it is rightly denominated the article upon which the church either stands or falls. So what he's saying is that justification is critical to the church. That if we believe that we do anything to earn God's approval, that there's anything we can do to move God emotionally, psychologically toward us, 
to approve us in any way, we're, we're selling ourselves out, okay? That it is strictly grace of God and a declaration of our justification based upon what Christ has done and our faith in Him. That's it. That's it. And this is something that, that's very important for us, and it's something that we, we've been very casual about, I think, in churches for a long time. Um, I know, just like what we're doing here beginning last fall and through the spring by focusing upon uh, Gruden's Bible Doctrine, and, you know, it was kind of funny. I think I told you all that uh, last August when I was getting ready to do this, I hadn't said anything to anyone. But in a staff meeting, um, Luke came to me, and I mentioned something about I was going to do this. And he said, you're going to do this on Wednesdays? And I said, yeah. And he said, I was going to do the same thing with the youth on Wednesdays. And it's just, you know, it's just another one of those affirmations from God that he was in it. And I know for most churches, they would look at this and go, we don't want to talk about doctrines. We want to talk about, you know, how God's going to help me, you know, go through life's difficulties and things like that. Listen, all I would have to say to respond to that, I would hope, is that the Great Awakening, you've heard about the Great Awakening in America, okay, back in 1700s, the Great Awakening a lot of people want to point to a lot of things and say, this is why the Great Awakening occurred. This is why the Great Awakening occurred. The thing that prompted the Great Awakening was churches returning to talk about and preach the doctrines of the Scripture. When you start talking about the tenets of the faith, when you start talking about them clearly and people understand them, it leads to repentance. It leads to people turning away from the world and turning toward God. And so you never go wrong by grounding ourselves in this. For too long, we as churches have become complacent in those things, and we've looked to tickle our ears, as Timothy says, in the last days, to do that which feels good or meets a perceived need that we have, and we've ignored doctrines. Doctrines tell us about what it means to be in a right relationship with God. The grounds, the terms for that, that's what doctrines do is they unfold that. Here's what God expects of us. He said so in his word. It's, it's revealed to us. And it's organized in a way that we can begin to work through them systematically and understand them. And as you understand that, you understand who God is. You understand how God relates to us even in the process of salvation. You understand eschatologically what's going to happen in the future based upon the word of God. Then it starts to begin to dawn on us that the things the world's offering us are... You know, pablum and candy and they're setting us up to fail whereas the things of God give us an apparatus upon which to rest in him so long winded way of saying that right justification it's an important topic it's an important doctrine Bavink said it's the one upon which the church either fails or succeeds how we view this relationship with God so thinking about that, Grudem kind of outlined his section, four or five major points. The first one being justification includes this legal declaration by God. Justify means to make right or declare right. To make right or declare right. So if I am 
out of relationship with God. Sin dominates my life. I have no relationship with God. I cannot have a relationship with God. And furthermore, there is nothing that I have the power to do to change my condition. I am weak. God's holy. Holiness is lost with the first sin or the first contact with sin. So God can have nothing to do with sin. By his own character, his own righteous and holy character, he is bound to judge sin. It deserves his wrath, his justice. So for God to take us, being creatures of sin, after the fall in the garden, and we've all inherited that condition, God goes and through Christ's work on the cross is able to declare us right. Not wrong. Sin makes us wrong. Sin puts us at enmity with God. That we're his enemy. Justification is God saying, I declare that you are right. And I accept you as right. You're welcomed into my presence. And that's done through Christ Jesus. We know this is true. It's a forensic event in this. That when you came to Christ, when you bowed your head, when you turned your life over to Christ and said, I want to follow Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord. We all believe that the Word of God teaches us at that moment you are what? Born again, that you are saved, that you are now part of God's family. But did anybody notice after you did that, you went out and sometimes soon after that event, you sinned again? You know, maybe even in the moments after, a, a, an ugly thought crossed your mind. That's sin, Jesus said. That's the, that's the level of perfection that's required of us. Not even our thoughts can stray. So how do you reconcile that? If I've been saved, I'm now a new creature, the Bible says, and I am in, adopted into God's family, and yet I'm still sinning like the old person. So how do we reconcile it? We're not, we're not changed inwardly right now. We're declared righteous. We're declared righteous by God. The, the blood of Christ becomes our advocate, our friend, our trappings. God attributes those to us and declares that you've put your faith and trust in Christ. You have taken me at my word that I will redeem you and save you. And God says, therefore, I declare that you are just. Don't deserve it. Still can't live up to it. But I have that declaration on my behalf. And so when I stand before him, I stand before him declared righteous. Even though I continue to fail. This is the idea. This justification means to make right or declare right. Okay, now we're going to start reading some verses. So wake up. Who's got the one with Romans 3, 20, 26, and 28? I do. All right, Steve, read to us. All right, uh, starting with 320. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right. What's he saying? You can't do anything to earn this. That it's your faith in what Christ has done and only in what Christ has done and God declares you righteous. Those are the terms that he's established. He said, this is the way it's done. But Lord, I'm going to go to church every day and I'm going to get baptized and I'm going to take the Lord's Supper and I'm going to share you. I'm going to witness to you. That's great. That's what you do because you've been redeemed, because you've been declared righteous. Your wants should change. You should want to do those things. You should have affections for, for God, for his, the things that please Him because you've changed course. But that's not what makes you righteous and that's not what earns his approval. You do that because you've been approved. He has declared you righteous. Romans 5.1. Who's got that? I do. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, when we're justified, we have peace with him. We're no longer at enmity with him. We're no longer his enemy. We're no longer at war against God. We're no longer re rebelling against God. We have peace. There's been a truce declared, and it's because of our faith in Him. Romans 8.30. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. So there you, there you have the process of how God seeks out and saves. He predetermines who He's going to save. He calls them with an effectual call. He justifies those when the, as, he, as they respond to that call because he has called them. And then he glorifies. He takes us all the way through and makes us like Christ. So there's nothing in there about us doing any part of that, is there? It's done unto us, which is good news. Because if it were left up to us, you know, my abilities waver each and every day, right? One day I may feel strong and I may feel like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna live the way I need to live and I may do these things, but you know, most of the time, majority of the time, we're not so strong, we're weak, we're, we're tempted and we fall to temptation. And that's true for all of us. So God says, I'm, I'm doing these things for those that I have called. Uh, Romans 10 4. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And you have verse 10 as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. to go with it? Yep. Wait just a second. Find it. For Christ is the end, and and Christ is the end of the law for righteousness is everyone who believes. Okay, the end of the law. 
Christ being the end of the law. Now, that's not to say, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to take the law out of the picture. I came to fulfill the law. I came to complete the law. That's what he means by the end of the law. And Galatians 2.16. Somebody? Galatians 2.16? Maybe Stuart had that. Maybe so. He's got it twice. <laughs> You're right. He does. I read it backwards. I'll read it. He was embarrassed, right? Yeah. Okay, Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Can't get any plainer than that, right? And 3.24, Galatians 3.24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Right. Okay. So justify means to make right or declare right. Also and particularly in Romans 4.5, this is what Scripture says. It says... To one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. That word reckoned, you know, Andy Griffith used to say it a lot, but you know what it means? Reconciled. Reckon. I reckon. I've determined. Declared. Yeah, I, I, I grant it. I, I give it. It's been reckoned to you. It's been gifted to you. In my translation says credited. Credited. Good, good one. Paul's not talking about God making the ungodly to be righteous. God does not change them internally at salvation and make them morally perfect. If this were the case, they would have merit or works of their own to depend. He means that God declares the ungodly to be righteous in His sight. It's not based on their works, faith, or belief in God. He declares them righteous. Okay. Romans 8, 33, 34. Romans 8, 33 and 34. You want to give that one out? Um, I'm there, so I can do that. All right, go ahead. Uh, who, who will bring a charge against God, God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. That brother who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, also intercedes for us. Okay. Sometimes when you're trying to define something, it's it's good to use a an antithesis of it. Something that's an opposite. So if we're going to use an opposite term to help us understand justified, justification, what would that be? Yeah. Condemn? Right. Somebody did the reading. Condemn. I mean, none of us like the sound of that, right? But 
John chapter 3, there in 17, 18, and 19, tells us that if you're not in Christ, you're condemned already. We come into this world because we're in enmity with God. His holiness necessitates that we be condemned when we come into this world. That has to, that has to change. And that can only be changed by God's declaration of justification. We're declared just. So, if we were to have an analogy, if you are, you commit a crime and they catch you, they've got the evidence, you're guilty, right? And you go in and the evidence is, is uh, presented and, you know, there's no question. You're done, right? And the judge declares you not guilty. How refreshing would that be? How liberating would that be? That's essentially what happens to us, except we know that's not going to happen. I mean, unless somebody somehow gets off. I mean, I guess it, it has happened. Some, sometimes happens. But, but for us, Christ took the condemnation for us so that God can now justify those that deserve it. So it's the opposite of being condemned. God should look at each one of us and say, you're condemned and you're condemned to face my wrath and you're condemned to face it for all of eternity. But in Christ, he can look at us and say, not guilty. You're justified. I declare you right. What? Never done anything right in my life. Grudem compares the work of a surgeon to that of a judge. I thought that was a pretty good comparison. The surgeon moves in and takes a cancer out of the body. The judge does something outwardly for us. He gives a verdict regarding our, our judicial status. That's what justification is about. Oh, thanks, Stu. I had to read your verse for you. You know what? Oh, I appreciate it. You just did that because of the sock comment. Well, I, know. I did it, and then I heard a lot about it outside from people walking by. But why does it have to have two? Two of the same verse? Are you trying to? Going to read it again in a few minutes. All right, get ready. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> so if you get up and leave again, I'm sending. I'm sending people out. <laughs> I can't come back. Ever. I would say something, but I mean, you know, you just got to get over this phobia, okay? I like your socks too. <laughs> That's the way, buttery mutt. Okay, justification is composed of two provisions. First, our sins are forgiven. No, we have no condemnation. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there, there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Sweetest words that we can hear, right? Therefore... There is now no condemnation. Paul's just gone through Romans. He has started in chapter 1, and lest I need to remind you after our journey through Romans, chapter 1, 2, and 3 starts out in a miserable, depressing state. You know, all have turned their back on God. All have given themselves, and God has given them over to the desires of their own heart and mind. They have become depraved. We see that in Romans 1. In two, he begins to make the case that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. All men are guilty. All men are judged. All men deserve to be judged. It's a sorry state that we're in. Then toward the end of chapter 3, but God, but God has begun to change things. 
You know, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God. But the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of the free gift of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. Right? And then you move from chapter 3 into chapter 4, and he starts talking about the justification that God has given. God has justified us. All of us, Romans 5 begins to talk about all of us have sinned because we all fell in Adam. Because of one man's sin and disobedience, all of us fell. But through one man's righteousness, one man's right acts, all of us can be declared righteous, not guilty. Chapter 6, chapter 7, you know, Paul in 6 says, Shall I continue to sin? Where grace, you know, where sin was, grace abounded, and where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. In other words, grace is always greater than sin. And then you get to chapter 7, and he talks about the struggle between, you know, I want to do what I, I want to do the right thing, but I end up not doing the right thing, doing the thing I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing, and I'm struggling with this. And then, Chapter 8, therefore, you know, can anybody set me free from this? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he starts climbing that peak in chapter 8, that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. And God has predestined some, and he has called some effectually, and he has justified them, and he will glorify them. And now nobody can separate us from the love of Christ. Not death, not anything can separate us from the love of Christ. Incredible stretch of path. And that, but that's just to set the tone of that verse 1 in chapter 8. It comes at that great time. I mean, it is a shout, a ringing shout from the top of a mountain. What God has done for us. <clears throat> God declares us justified. We have no penalty to pay for sin. My wife, uh, bless her heart, she she worries over things. Um, and she gets her dog food through the mail, you know, through UPS. She orders it online and it, it gets shipped regularly, regularly as clockwork. It comes, you know, once a month. We get a box. It's got the big bag of dog food in it. The dog loves it. Everybody's happy. So we came up toward December, and um, she was worried that the dog food was not going to come before Christmas, and that there was going to be a couple of days in there, you know, that we're going to be without dog food. So should we buy some? Should we not? She made a call and told them, could you, could you change the shipment, make sure it gets here a little early? And they said, yeah, we can handle that. Well, what happened? They, they, rather than change the shipping because it was already going, they just sent out another box of dog food. Okay, so a box of dog food shows up on time, but that was the easy thing for them to do. They to get into trying to change the shipping arrangements. It's cheaper just to you know do this, and so then she started worrying about. Okay, we got an extra box of dog food. And I said, well, the dog will eat it unless he dies, and if he dies, I'll eat it. You know, it'll be okay. <laughs> but she ends up calling them, and what they told her was, yeah, we just sent out an extra box to make sure you had it on time. She said, okay, well, am I going to get billed for this? And they said, nope, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. No charge. There's no penalty. I said, so now we're a month ahead. The dog doesn't have to stress. My wife doesn't have to stress. 
No penalty. It's all paid. That's the way it is with our salvation. Amplified, multiplied terms is that there's nothing to pay. We owe what we can't pay. We're so far in debt to God that there's no way we could ever come up with enough. Millions. If you had, if you had, uh, if you were thinking of it in monetary terms, you would be in debt. You would have to personally be responsible for the federal debt of the United States of America yourself. Can you imagine how suffocating that would be? Doesn't bother them, but it would bother you as a responsible citizen. Twenty-one trillion dollars or whatever it is. That's unfathomable. I can't count that high. I, I never could ever pay that. Well, our debt to God for sin dwarfs the federal debt. It dwarfs it. There's, there's nothing we could do. And yet, because of what Christ did, God can look at us and say, debt's paid. No charge. No charge. If, if we get our minds around what God has gone to such great depths, lengths to do for us, there would be no room for casualness in our worship and approach to God. No one can bring a charge against us, the scripture says. No one. There's no one out there that can bring an accusation against us that will stand, no matter what we've done. You ever wonder about that? Things you did maybe early on, you ever look over your shoulder and think, you know, what if so-and-so showed up? Or, or maybe I didn't pay that, you know, bill or... There's always a chance. You know, years ago, um, I had somebody that was in my church. She was my treasurer, and she was a personal banker at the local bank. And so I would go by there every Monday, you know, we'd kind of hash out the receipts from the day before and what needed to be paid that week. And, and so she, she tells me, she says, I want you to apply for a credit card. And I said, I already have a credit card. It's one too many. Don't need another one. Well, she was competing for a trip. She said... I really need the points. And I said, okay, I guess I could always cancel the old one and just take the new one. But I said, if you'll do all the work and I don't have to do anything but sign it, I'm good with it. And she said, done. A couple of days she calls me and she says, um, I don't know how to approach this with you. I said, well, just spit it out. And she said, uh, you, got a, you got a debt on your, uh, on your credit score that... You know, you didn't, you didn't resolve, you didn't pay, and it's it's flagged and showing up. And I said, "What? No way!" She said, "Yeah." And she said, "It's like forty thousand dollars." I said, "I never bought anything for forty thousand dollars in my life." Uh, this was a long time ago. You know, you spend that on a car now, I guess. But um, it turns out that that I had a like a third cousin once removed or something who whose name is Jerry David Dockery and that he had bought a mobile home or something and it got put on my credit report when he let it go back to the lender. And, um, and, I, and I, I had to move heaven and earth, literally, to get it off my credit score, you know? But that, so now I'm always thinking, you know, who else is gonna stick me with their debt, you know? And we live in this computerized technological world today where that stuff is done more easily maybe than it was even years ago. One year, or one day, I went through and deposited my check at the local bank, gave it to the lady. Didn't have a deposit slip. A small town. Everybody knows everybody. Hey, Marilyn, here's my check. Put it in. She put it in my dad's account. You know? Put it in my dad's account. I didn't like that at all. 
we realized that we were short of funds and I start tracking it down. Turns out it's in my dad's account. I call my mom up and I say, what's going on? And she said, well, I wondered where we got that windfall from. And I said, but you didn't say anything, did you? You were going to spend it. God keeps track of these things. We try to, but we're not as good at it as he is. Good at it as he is. Forgiveness and removal of sin is not enough. That only makes us neutral. We have to have the positive righteousness of God. He has to put something in our account, and that is the righteousness of Christ in order to make us acceptable to God. We are declared righteous in the sight of God. Isaiah 61:10. Who has that one? Romans 3, 21 through 22. Romans 4, 3. Well, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's that word reckon again. If you were reading in the King James, I believe it would say reckon. Counted, credited. Romans 5, 19. Romans 5.19. Wow, I was a slacker, wasn't I? Here, I thought I was on. You got it? Go ahead. For as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. So, God has made, made us righteous. How did he make this declaration? It's important that we understand the critical nature of Christ's imputed righteousness. Christ is made our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and I'm coming to Philippians 3.9 after that. 1 Corinthians 1.30 and then Philippians 3.9. I have it. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption Philippians 3 9 uh, this starts off in the middle of a sentence so I'm going to read the first sentence okay. All right. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Good. Now, uh, he goes in, touches on something here that I, I want us to, to do as well, uh, to take note of, about the uh, traditional Roman Catholic understanding of uh, righteousness. And uh, I'm going to read this from 319 in his book. 
He says the traditional Roman Catholic understanding of justification is very different from what we believe about God declaring righteous, outwardly expressed, but not yet inwardly realized. The Roman Catholic Church understands justification as something that changes us internally and makes us holier within. This view may be said to understand or justification as based not on imputed righteousness, but on infused righteousness. That is, righteousness that God actually puts into us and that changes us internally and in terms of our actual moral character. The result of this traditional Roman Catholic view of purification is that people cannot be sure if they are in a state of grace. Right? So that's why you get the cycle of penance and, you know, and then even culminating in purgatory and, you know, we got to get you out. So you can see how works begin to creep into that way of thinking, right? Where they experience God's complete acceptance and favor or not. Furthermore, under this view, people experience varying degrees of justification according to the measure of righteousness that has been infused or placed within them. Ultimately, the logical consequence of this view of justification is that our eternal life with God is not based on God's grace alone, but partially on our merit as well. As one Catholic theologian puts it, quote, for the justified eternal life is both a gift of grace promised by God and a reward for his own good works and merits. Salutary works are at the same time gifts of God and meritous work acts of men <clears throat> so you understand a little bit about what goes on with their observance of the sacraments and things like that is that they're constantly trying to fill themselves more with righteousness infuse more righteousness inside become more holy that's why when they die <clears throat> they believe they're going to purgatory and hoping they've done enough okay that's where that comes from so being declared righteous, the robes of righteousness applied to our account in a forensic matter rather than being infused with righteousness from God is where you get that distinction. For us, we can have confidence because we've been declared righteous by God. And God's not changing his mind. And there's no place for any of our merit in it. So therefore, it doesn't fluctuate. It's not open for debate or fluctuation. The idea that God changes us on the inside, making us holy, varying degrees of righteousness, okay, enough of that. I've already done it. Justification is based entirely on God's grace, not any merit in ourselves. Romans 3.20 and 23.24. Oh, yeah. Okay. heard this term unmerited favor what is that translate unearned grace unearned that's right it's grace it's a gift of grace listen what God does for us is a gift 
And I know this probably happens sometimes, but when, you know, at Christmas, when someone gave you a gift or you gave someone a gift, did you expect payment for it? We might, we might actually, my, my brother thinks that's what happens because, you know, when my big family gets together this year, it seemed like there was a whole lot of, you know, just giving money. And he said, I think all we did was swap money. And he said, and I'm pretty sure I came up on the short end. <laughs> you know, we give this one money, we give that one money, and then we get money back. And so he's balancing his sheets. But unmerited favor, you don't expect anything in return. Unmerited, unearned. It's unearnable favor. God gives it as a gift out of his goodness, out of his character. It can't be earned. It can't be repaid. We have absolutely no ability to earn God's favor or approval. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, so it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God has no obligation to impute our sin to Christ or his righteousness to us. He's under no obligation to do that. You know... This is the thing that, that people get uh, in their minds thinking about God bringing judgment to bear upon sinners, you know, as if he's chosen some people to cast into hell. And the truth of the matter is, is that all of us deserve hell, you know. This is not unfair of God in the grand scheme of things. It's unfair because of our view of ourselves, but it's not unfair of God. What's unfair is that God lets any of us live any length of time. His common grace that allows us to exist when we should have been, we should be judged the moment we take our first breath of air. When we're born into this world, we should be judged and, and dealt with at that moment. If God were truly going to be fair, you know, tit for tat, oh, you're a sinner, you're gone. That's it. But He doesn't. He allows us to live physically. And then he calls out the, 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 uh, the chosen, the, the elect, his people. Sets his grace upon them. It's an incredible gift of, of uh, unmerited favor that God uh, extends to all of us. It's purely a gift <clears throat> and not earned. We're going to make it. God justifies us through our faith in Christ. Faith is an instrument to obtain justification, but it has no merit. Some people treat their faith as a work. You hear it, you hear it on the television. If you just had more faith, if you just had more faith, you know, if you can make your faith greater, you know, faith is not, <clears throat> Jesus said it took faith as the size of a mustard seed. Any of you know how big a mustard seed is? about like a little flake of pepper in it. It's small. He said if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could do what? Move, Move mountains. A little bit of hyperbole there, but basically what he's saying is that just a little faith, if it's properly placed, can do incredible things. Faith is only as good as the object in which the faith is placed. Okay, I can say I have um, great faith 
that if I stood up and you drew across those backs of those chairs uh, some bounty paper towel off the roll and you stretched it across that I could stand on that and it would support me. Now you're going to laugh and say, no way. But I got faith. I got a lot of faith that that'll work. Well, that, it's got to work, right? Because I have a lot of faith. But my faith is in a faulty object. It's impossible for this to happen. You can have faith in yourself, and that's what a lot of a lot of human beings, particularly Americans, thrive on. And American religion is built on this this kind of faith in ourselves. You know, this doism, this you know, buck up and jerk ourselves up by the bootstraps and do all these things. Our faith is in ourselves and our abilities, our ingenuity, our our you know whatever. But it's a faulty object. When your faith is in Christ, there is no faltering. It's the difference between putting your faith in a, in a bounty paper towel over the chair or the rock of Gibraltar. Which one would you rather be anchored to when the hurricane comes through? We get all kinds of weather around here. We've seen the weather patterns, the wind and the storms and even tornadoes and stuff. You know, I feel very, very secure down in the basement of this building. This thing, you know, if you dropped a daisy cutter on it, it would have some work to do, right? I mean, you go all the way back under the front foyer of the church, and there's a, there's a big walk-in closet back there that's about half the size of this room. That's my bunker, you know? When, when the air, air raids or tornado raid uh, sirens or anything start going off, that's where I'm heading because you couldn't touch that without a daisy cutter. It's just that solid. Faith is well placed in the security of this building because it's solid. Christ, there's nothing more solid. In fact, there's nothing else that can compare to Christ. Faith in anything but Christ is doomed to fail. It's not the amount of faith, a little bit of faith in Christ, and a lot of faith in a paper towel, one doomed to fail, one doomed to succeed. Galatians 2.16 Okay, uh, I'm going to read it 15, though. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Romans 3, 25 and 26. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because of his forbearance he had let the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and to be and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ is the opposite of putting faith in ourselves. That's why when we talk about turning to Christ, you turn from trusting in yourself and your own ways and desires to putting your trust in Him. And the way you put your trust in Him is believing what He says in His Word, taking Him at His Word. I put my trust. I rest on what He has told me. Even though I can't see it, I can't feel it, you know, the circumstances may tell me something different, but His Word stands true. And I, I rest in that not in what I do or what I want or what I think or what any opinion of anybody else may have. 
Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> okay, now we've got to deal with one major problem area. James chapter 2. You know the argument in James? James says, faith without works is dead. What's he saying? Is he saying, is he arguing with Paul? Is he disagreeing with Paul? Is he taking issue with those that have been teaching that faith without works is the way we're saved, the way we're justified by God? He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So what's he saying? That's exactly right. That's what he's saying. He said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Does that faith save him? He's saying, Is that faith legitimate? Is that really the kind of faith that the Bible outlines for us? No. Those who have a true faith in Christ have their affections changed, they have their behaviors changed. And so, yes. If, if someone says, well, I have faith in Christ, but they're not, they're not living out the law of Christ, which means I love God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and I love people as I love myself, and therefore I minister, I do things in, in obedience to God. If those things don't characterize who I am, then he's saying, is that really saving faith? Is that really saving faith in God? Because saving faith in God is an active faith. You know, it demonstrates there's a fruit to the faith. And that fruit is our ministry, our, our service, our deeds, our works. But we don't do those things to gain God's approval. We do them because we already have his approval. Okay, good. Y'all didn't need much on that, did you? Practical implications of justification by faith alone. It gives hope to sinners. It gives believers confidence in Christ's merit and not our own. Adoption. I have to touch on that before we leave. Adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. John 1.12. We've already read Galatians 3.26, so I'm going to skip it. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will have, what we will be, has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Romans 8, 14, 17. 14 through 17. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are called sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ, 
if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Justification is, is a lot like adoption. And in fact, that's a picture the Bible uses. Paul uses it a lot. He does in Romans. Adoption in the culture, the Roman culture, is different from what we know. We know people adopt children all the time. They, they, you know, a lot of people, and I commend them for this, they, you know, will adopt children from other countries that maybe don't have much of a future in front of them and raise them here um, in the United States with all of the, the blessings and things that go with that. And that's, that's a great thing to do. But adoption in that culture was... Um, you know, if you had someone that had a natural son and they wanted another one and they went out and adopted a, a child, once they adopted that child, that transaction became permanent. They could never disown that child. That child was guaranteed to be a part of the inheritance. The natural child could be disinherited. If your son misbehaved or gave reproach to you, think about the prodigal son, the father could very easily have said, you're out of here. Don't come back. Don't come crawling to me. There was nothing to suggest that that father should have done what he did. Paul talked about that. Well, you did that in an elder meeting, though, I guess. Not in here, was it? But in the sermon, too. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's where I remember hearing it then. That, that father had no obligation to receive that son back. In fact, the obligation on him, culturally speaking, was to shun that son that son to embarrass that son because the son had embarrassed him but he didn't he took him back in but an adopted child once you went out and made a decision to bring a child into your family he's guaranteed his status you couldn't take it away from him and so when Paul's talking about us being adopted into God's family it's an incredible act of love and grace that God displays but it also speaks to our security and assurance in him that God would have to disown Christ before he could disown us. Now just let that sink in a little bit. Spirit of adoption. We cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. That's the relationship that we have with him. Justification enables that. Justification ushers us into that. And I'm going to stop there. So you can read the Ephesians 2, 2 and 3, 5 and 6, and John... 841 to 44 on your own. Any questions?